Um, If you have your Bibles, I want you to turn to Exodus chapter 20. Exodus chapter 20. We're going to look at verse 3 this morning. And we'll read through verses 3 through 6. But in particular, verse 3 is where we're going to fix our attention. Exodus chapter 20, verse 3. It reads, you shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make for yourself a carved image or any likeness of anything that is in heaven above or that is in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me. But showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. May the Lord add a blessing to the hearers, readers, and doers of his holy and errant infallible word. You know, when, when we talk about sharing in life, sharing typically is a good thing. We teach our kids from, from, from a very early age to share with their friends and, and, to, and to share their Tonka trucks or their, or their Barbies with, with their friends that come over. And so typically, most of the time, sharing is a good thing. But there are times where sharing is not a good thing, right? For example, I, I have no plans, neither does my wife have any plans to share one another with anybody else, right? So, uh, so my wife certainly has no plans on sharing me, um, and I have no plans on sharing her. Even, even there's, we've joked to one another that even when we die, if the Lord would permit, we would haunt one another if we happen to um, um, go out and get remarried. I mean, we have no intentions on sharing ourselves, right? Um, and, so, and so there's an ideal, in some, there's, there's times in which sharing is good and there's times where sharing is not good. This is a time in which sharing is not good. God has no intentions whatsoever in sharing himself with another God as the object of our worship and the object of our affection. At the heart of our covenant with God is this very important abiding truth, and it's this. God, our relationship with God is a monogamous relationship. The Lord will not tolerate other gods in our lives. He doesn't permit sharing. When you take a look at the way the Ten Commandments are ordered, it just makes logical sense, actually, that we would start the Ten Commandments with this first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. The reason it makes sense is because it's been said that that if the first commandment is obeyed, then all the other commandments flow from it. If we make it our aim to obey the first commandment, then the effort to obey the second commandment or the second and the third and on and on and on just flows out of that. To place no idol before Christ, our King. To place no idol before the triune God. So this commandment is the key that unlocks all the other commandments. It's very important that we, that, that we really get this commandment right, that we really pursue obedience to this commandment. In fact, this morning, I want to give you three reasons why you should actually seek to obey this commandment. The first reason is that God will not share his people with other gods. I mentioned that earlier. He is not interested in sharing us in in terms of worship. As we discussed last week, 
Words like these are meant to speak to the polytheists and the monotheists and the atheists. The polytheists, of course, are those that believe in many gods, the worship of many gods. The monotheists are those that believe in worship of one god. And the atheists are those that believe in the worship of no god. In other words, your culture may promote the worship of many gods, and to that, to that God would say, do not put those gods before me. I alone must be worshipped. Or your culture may promote the worship of no gods, but, your, but, but yourself ultimately. And to that God would say, do not put any other God before me, even yourself. I alone must be worshipped. Or your culture may even promote the worship of one God, just not the triune God. To that God would say... Do not put that God before me. I alone must be worshipped. You see, God will not be one among many. God will only be satisfied if he is the exclusive. One author summarizes this truth in this way. He says, don't think that you can mix God with your worship of idols. If you want one-third of God and two-thirds of other idols... You get none of God, end quote. This is important for a few reasons. Uh, God is giving his people a very clear distinction in their culture that, that gives them no choice but to stand out. You see, polytheism, the worship of many gods, is all around them. And God is saying that they may be the, that may be your culture, but it will not be your culture within because I will not tolerate it. It doesn't matter what everybody else is doing and all the other gods that they have enlisted for worship. You will put no other God before me. You will worship only me. But another thing God is doing here is God is forcing them and forcing us into an internal, internal battle. You see, one of the most important things for us to remember about idols is that most of them are not formal. Most of them are not outside of us. Most of them are informal and inside of us. In his commentary on the book of Acts, the great theologian John Calvin famously said that the human heart is a factory of idols. Every one of us, he continues, is from his mother's womb, expert in inventing idols, end quote. In his most popular work, The Institutes of the Christian Faith, John Calvin elaborates a little more on that thought. He says, daily experience shows that the flesh is always restless until it has obtained some figment like itself with which it may vainly solace itself as a representation of God. In other words, it looks for something within itself to worship. We are worshipers. Whether we worship the triune God or not, we are worshipers. Even if you declare yourself this morning an atheist, you still worship. You still find significance and purpose, and hope, and satisfaction in something. Calvin is saying, even if you had no formal idols to worship, your flesh would formulate something to worship. 
It is restless until it formulates something like itself to serve as a representation of God. That's what Calvin is saying. Of course, this could be graven images made of metal and wood, but oftentimes it is invisible images made from the raw material of sin. Sometimes it is the idol of sex stirred up and fomented from unchecked lustful thoughts and actions or from lies that tell us the greatest right we have is to be sexually satisfied at all costs. Sometimes it's the idol of greed cultivated over years of believing the lie that money can bring ultimate salvation, leading us to close up our bowels of compassion and fight to hoard as many dollars as we possibly can out of the sheer right versus the need. Sometimes it is the idol of Racism developed from the pride we have in our ethnicity or the fear we have of other ethnicities. Sometimes the idol of nationalism developed in our misplaced confidence in our own country's exceptionalism, leading to some of the unfortunate events that we witnessed this week. We are worshipers. And so when our worship of the one true God is empty, we will always fill the void with an idol. God's words, you shall have no other God before me, are, an, are a collective acknowledgement that if you don't put me first, something else will go there, but I will not share you with that other thing. You get I get all of you or you get none of me. I'm not sharing you with other gods. I will not be accessorized amongst many. In fact, we see this in clear flashing lights in the book of Ezekiel, chapter 14, verse 1 through 3, Ezekiel says this. He says, then certain of the elders of Israel came to me and sat before me, and the word of the Lord came to me. Son of man, these men have taken their idols into their hearts, very important, and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Here's what's happening here in this text. Israel's, Israel's leaders are struggling pretty badly. Babylon has decimated Israel, taken most of its population into captivity and back to Babylon, and the folks remaining in Jerusalem are left deeply discouraged. So the Jerusalem elders, those left in Jerusalem, begin to bring idols into the temple out of the thought that God has possibly or probably even abandoned them. Back in Babylon, where many of Israel's people have been taken captive, the elders have not resorted yet to physically bringing these idols into worship. But that does not mean that those idols are not present. And that's what Ezekiel is talking about here. He's saying that you've taken the idols into your heart. Continuing in chapter 14, verse 3 of Ezekiel, he says this, Son of man, 
These men have taken their idols into their hearts and set the stumbling block of their iniquity before their faces. Should I indeed let myself be consulted by them? Therefore speak to them and say to them, thus says the Lord God, any one of the house of Israel who takes his idols into his heart and sets the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and yet comes to the prophet, I, the Lord, will answer him as he comes from the multitude of his idols, that I may lay hold of the hearts of the house of Israel who are all estranged from me through their idols. You see... They didn't have any physical idols, but it doesn't mean that they were without idols. The idols were present in their hearts. So these elders were showing up in front of Ezekiel and looking for a word from the Lord. And the Lord was saying, no, you don't get to consult me when your allegiance is to idols. And if someone were to ask, what do you mean idols? Our allegiance is to you. We have no idols. Look around. The elders back in Jerusalem are worshiping idols, but not us. God's response would be, the idols you've taken into your heart are just as bad and invite my judgment. Again, if you want one-third of God and two-thirds of other idols, you get none of God. It doesn't matter whether the idols are visible and external or invisible and internal. So what counsel does God have for these elders in the 14th chapter of Ezekiel? He says in verse 6, Therefore say to the house of Israel, Thus says the Lord God, Repent and turn away from your idols, and turn away your faces from all your abominations for any one of the house of Israel or of the strangers who sojourn, sojourn in Israel, who separates himself from me, taking his idols into his heart and putting the stumbling block of his iniquity before his face and, and yet comes to a prophet to consult me through him I the Lord will answer him myself and I will set my face against that man I will make him a sign and a byword and cut him off from the midst of the people and you shall know that I am the Lord he tells them to repent from your idolatry the idolatry where you try to place me Replace me by bringing idols into my house of worship and the idolatry where you try to share me by taking idols into your heart while consulting my prophets about your future. Repent of all of it or I will set my face against you and cut you off is what the Lord says. There's a lot of relevance for that in this moment. You know, there were a lot of things that, about, the, about the events that transpired in Washington on Wednesday that captured my attention. Even talked to some of, the, some of the brothers and sisters here this morning a little bit that are serving us with video and singing. But the biggest thing that stood out and grieved me the most, aside from the death, death that was suffered, was the attempt to fuse together the insurrection attempt with the gospel of Jesus Christ and to make it seem like they were one and the same. There's an, there, there was an opening lead from an article that I read this, this 
week, and it, and it went as follows. The name of God was everywhere during Wednesday's insurrection against the American government. Did you hear that? The name of God was everywhere during Wednesday's insurrection against the American government. The mob carried signs and flags declaring, Jesus saves, and God, guns and guts made America. Let's keep all three. Further down in the article, you get this line. Defiant masses literally broke down the walls of government, some believing they were marching under Jesus' banner to implement God's will to keep the president in the White House, end quote. Family, this is the embodiment of Ezekiel 14. This is not mere political engagement. This is not merely casting a ballot for Trump or casting a ballot for Biden or casting a ballot for an independent option. And I'm not here to bind your conscience on any of that. It's not, that's, not, that's not my job nor my focus because these decisions are far too complicated with far too many layers for me to try to do that. But what this is about is that Wednesday's storming of the Capitol was also fused or attempted to be fused and aligned together with the message and the hope of the gospel. That's why I call it an embodiment of Ezekiel 14. I call it that because what happened Wednesday was people being so convinced that God needs one candidate or the other to accomplish his will that they have to storm the Capitol in violence in his name in order to force it into existence. I call it that because what happened Wednesday was people so identifying with their preferred political party and politician that they cast their movement to overturn the results as a Christian movement of good versus evil. This is saying the same thing that the elders in Babylon were saying. We have no idols because you don't have, because you don't see any idols because there are no idols to touch when in reality what we have done is taken the idol of political partisanship into our hearts and consulted God as we have that idol harboring in the places where only he is supposed to abide. As we saw this week, it is deadly to walk in idolatry. But more importantly, God is not interested in sharing himself with any of this. He's not interested in sharing himself with politicians and GOPers and Democrats and independents. None of them have place on his throne. So we must make it our ambition, even in our sinful flesh, to never try and place them there. This is why the Apostle John warns us in his letter, 1 John, his final words, the, literally the last words as he closes that letter is, little children, keep yourselves from idols. This troubling moment in history actually leads us to another very important point that we need to consider as we, as we obey the commandment to put no other God before the triune God. Why should we obey the commandment? 
because idols always promise more than what they're able to deliver. Why do we even pursue idols? Because we follow idols because of what they make or because of the promises they make to us. They promise us hope. They promise us joy. They promise us satisfaction. They promise us rest. They promise us peace. They promise, they promise, they promise, and they promise. That's why there's so much reckless ambition right now in our country. Because of promises. That's why people are pushing through on the Capitol and pushing gates down and doors down and people are locked, locked in rooms in fear of their lives because the idols have promised us. Even personally, even, our own, even in our own lives right now in this very moment, many of us are tempted to reject God and turn towards unhealthy relationships because of the promise of more happiness that we've been given by those idols. Some of you are tempted to turn right now towards giving into your fleshly appetite, whether that be sex or whether that be stuffing your belly with wine or stuffing your belly with food and, and, and looking for that satisfaction. And in and, and doing so, you're rejecting the truth that only God can satisfy. And why are you doing that? Because the idols have promised you that satisfaction. Some of you are tempted to try and force God into your work agenda and in your career plans and your ambitions because you believe that the career is going to give you ultimate joy. So you are carving off God into a third in order to serve the two-thirds of career. Why? Because it's promised you joy. Some of you believe the Democrats are going to secure peace for you. Some of you believe that the GOP is going to bring security for you. Why do we do this? Because sin has left us with eternal longings, deep soul desires, and idols promise us that they can deliver those things. And they never do it. They never do it. How many times have you traded in obedience to God to follow one of these idols along the trail? One of these idols that, have, that, that has told you that, that this time is going to be different. This time, exactly what you're looking for, you're going to find it. This time, the money will make you happy. This time, the influence will satisfy you. This time, that political party or that politician will deliver the security that you've been dreaming of and that you've been waiting for. This time, the relationship will, will satisfy you. And every single time you pursue the ends that God has instructed you not to, you're left empty yet again and with more regret than the time before. Our idols promise and promise and promise. They always over-promise and they always under-deliver. And why is that? Habakkuk chapter 2 says, What profit is an idol? 
when its maker has shaped it. A metal image, a teacher of lies, for its maker trusts in his own creation when he makes speechless idols. Woe to him who says to a wooden thing, awake to a silent stone, arise. Can this teach? Behold, it is overlaid with gold and silver, and there is no breath at all in it. But the Lord is in his holy temple. Let all the earth keep silence before him. They promise, and they promise, and they promise, but they can never deliver. They have no resurrection life in them. They have no creative power in them. They have no eternity in them. In fact, one pastor captures this sentiment so well, and he, it, 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 he literally mentioned this this week, and I caught it, and I was like, that is, that is so true. He said this, idols promise peace, but give us prison instead. Idolatry can't deliver what you're looking for. But there is something that they are always sure to give us. Bondage. Bondage. In fact, Romans chapter 1 is a highlight of this bondage that idolatry leads to. In chapter 1, verse 18, it says, For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world and the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor, honor him as God or give thanks to him. But they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals animals and creeping things therefore God gave them up in their lust of their hearts to impurity to the dishonoring of their bodies among themselves because they exchanged the truth about God for a lie and worshiped and served the creature rather than the creator who is blessed forever amen do you see what happens when we trade in the creator for the creation it causes a corroding effect on us. When we, when we turn towards idolatry, we lose our sense for God. Because we replace it with an imposter. Sexually, we lose our ability to capture God's will for us. Relationally, we lose our ability to capture God's will for us. Practically, as it relates to day-to-day -day wisdom, it becomes difficult to attain and difficult to grasp. And idolatry ends up leaving us doing things and asking ourselves, why on earth did I do that? It's because it promises peace, but it gives us prison instead. Leaves us making silly decision after silly decision. Because it's promised, 
and promised and promised and underdelivered. What do we do about it? We turn to Jesus. The last reason I want to give you regarding why you should follow or why you should not turn from God to idols, why you should obey the commandment to have no other gods before me. The last reason is because Jesus is better than the idols. In John 6, verse 35, Jesus says that I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger, and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. That is the language built for people that have been chasing idols. Thirsty and hungry people that continue to look towards the idol of sex, that continues to look towards the idol of power, that continues to look towards the idol of greed, that continues to look towards the idol of security and safety. Thirsty people, hungry people. Jesus is saying, I am the bread of life. Only I can feel you like you need to be filled. John 8 and 12, he says that I am the light of the world. Whoever follows me will not walk in darkness, but will have the light of life. John 10 and 11 says, I am the good shepherd, and the good shepherd lays down his life for the sheep. We are all idolaters. We have all committed the sin of idolatry. We have all chosen other gods before the triune God. But the good shepherd has come. And he, in place of us, has laid down his life in order that we might be given life, in order that we might be eternally satisfied even when we chase after things that bring no satisfaction ultimately to us. John chapter 11 says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet he shall live. Isn't that what we're all chasing, preservation, life, and life more abundantly? Well, guess what? Jesus says, turn to me and I will give you that. Not a politician, not a political party, and not, and not, and not money, and not security in, in this world or safety in this world. I will give you life. If you turn to me, if you trust me, if you repent and turn from your way and turn to mine. In fact, Jesus says in John 14 that I am the way and I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. This is the solution. This is the answer to our idolatry. Jesus. Jesus is. Real quickly, I just want to share two practical applications for you. Two tests, if you will. How do we know when we are creeping into idolatry? You know, one of my favorite pastors and theologians, Tim Keller, he gives a really, really, really good extensive assessment that I don't have time to deep dive in this morning. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to, we're going to post it on today's 
uh, YouTube page. So if you just look at the bottom of the description box, hopefully this afternoon when all, all is said and done, we'll post a link so that you can look at this assessment through the week and, and begin to just kind of begin to just kind of allow, allow that, those questions to probe your heart and just, and just find out where you may be allowing idolatry to leak into your heart. But another pastor theologian by the name of Phil Riken offers two tests that I do have time to get into that can help us determine which gods we are tempted to worship. The first test, he says, is the love test. What do we love? This is what he says about it. It only makes sense. We are called to love God with all of our hearts, all of our minds. But if instead we give our love to someone or something else, then we are serving some other God. And then Riken moves into some very simple questions that we can ask ourselves when we are gauging idolatry in our lives. What do you love? Or to, simp- or to ask the same question a different way, he continues, what do you desire? When your mind is free to roam, what do you think about? How do you spend your money? What do you get excited about? He continues, a false God can be anything that we focus on to the exclusion of God. It could be a sport, it could be recreation, it could be a hobby, it could be personal interests, it can be an appetite for the finer things of life, it could be a career ambition, it could be personal health and fitness, it could be even a ministry in, 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 in the church. Certainly, we are allowed to enjoy the good things in life, but we must not allow them to replace God as the object of our affections or affections. And then Riken moves to the second test. Here's the second test to gauge our idolatry. The trust test. What do you trust? Where do you turn in times of trouble? Martin Luther says, he continues, whatever thy heart clings to and relies upon, that is properly thy God. Thomas Watson, he also quotes, said to trust in anything more than God is to make it a God. And then he continues and says, this makes sense too. We are called to trust in God alone for our salvation. But if we put our trust in someone or something else, we are serving some other God. So what do you trust? Some people trust their addictions when they are in trouble, when they are lonely or discouraged. They turn to drugs, alcohol, or sex, or shopping, or some other obsession to pull them through. Other people trust things that are good in themselves, but but that nevertheless have a way of replacing our confidence in God. Some trust their their insurance policies, or their pension plans for their security. Some put their faith in the government and its control of the the economy. Some trust their families or their social position. Some people trust science and medicine. God can use all of these things he continues to care and provide for us, but we are to place our ultimate confidence in him alone. End quote. Test, test. This week, why don't you spend some time mulling over that and pondering that in your devotion time. And as you begin to identify those areas of idolatry in your heart, don't panic. Take them to the Lord. And ask the Lord to do the work that only he can and to help us 
to draw us more, to deepen our appreciation for him more, to deepen our satisfaction in him more, and to help us by the grace of God, by his grace, and with the power of his spirit, put no other gods before him. Would you pray with me, God? We love you and we thank you so much.